Um, good morning, my name is Mary Brack and I'll be doing the first reading today to prepare as we prepare for the message. In John chapter 17, we have recorded a conversation between God and the Son and God the Father. The context of this prayer is important. This prayer comes at the conclusion of what is known as the farewell discourse, where Jesus informs his followers what will take place after his departure. He tells them what they should expect and he reveals the truth about his relationship with his father. The discourse ends with Jesus interceding on behalf of his followers and thus it has come to be known as the high priestly prayer. In verse six to 18, he prays for his immediate followers, those with him then. Jesus' first concern is that they remain united. He prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' next concern was for his disciples' sustenance and strength in the world, that their assignment is dangerous and so he prays for their protection. In John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Jesus prays for their protection, particularly from Satan. He recognizes the power of evil and he understands that representing God in this world is an invitation into genuine battle. Jesus' third concern has to do with holiness. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself and they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus prays that his disciples might be sanctified in the truth. This refers to something made holy, but the means to achieve this holiness is through being set apart. So, unity, protection, and a willingness to be set apart. These were things that were so important to Jesus that he comes on behalf of his followers to his dads and intercedes on their behalf. He then continues his prayer, so we would know we were included, we today who seek to follow him. John 17, 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that we may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Max Licardo in his book, Grip of, In the Grips of Grace, reflecting on these verses, writes this, Jesus, knowing the end is near, prays this for his followers. Striking, isn't it? that he prayed not for their success or their safety or their happiness. He prayed for their unity. He prayed that they would love each other and that means us. Jesus prayed that you and I be one. Jesus prayed uh, all of these lessons we can draw from these verses. Don't miss the most important. Unity matters to God. Why? Because all people will know that you are my followers if you love each other. John 13, 35. Unity creates belief and disunity fosters disbelief. Tim Keller states that Jesus knew that if the church walked in this unprecedented, 
spirit-empowered unity, she would invite onlookers to taste and see what this was all about. And yet, church unity is not singularly supernatural. It is a divine and human innovation. God partners with the faith-filled and willing. It is unified people of God whom the Spirit uses to reach the far ends of the earth with the gospel. In other words, unity is not simply the work of the Spirit, but the very instrument through which the Spirit works. Unity must be seen to matter. It is time for us to strive to be humble and obedient so as to be part of the answer of God's prayer. Josh will now do the second reading. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is, a, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with a statement that seems to be obvious. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Well, of course it is. Who doesn't believe that? It's so obvious. But the psalm writer isn't telling us this because he thinks we are ignorant of this fact. He is telling us this because he knows that we know that it is true. This is a statement of affirmation, not information. Pity doing isn't as easy as knowing. Knowing is good, but doing is better. I'd now like to welcome Abby for the next reading. Sorry. Brendan finished his message to us last week with these words from Paul. A blessing, an encouragement, a challenge and important for us to hear again. From Romans 15, the message. Those of us who are strong and able in the faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? That's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't make it easy for himself by avoiding people's troubles, but waded wide in to help. I look on the troubles of the troubled, is the way scripture puts it. Even if it was written in scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the combination of his steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for whatever he will do next. May our dependably steady, and warmly personal God, develop us, develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. Then we'll be a choir, not our voices only, but our very lives, singing in harmony in a stunning anthem to God and, Ma and Father of our Master Jesus. So reach out and welcome one another to God's glory. Jesus did it, now you do it. Thanks to Mary and to Josh and also to Abby. Those um, parts of scripture set us up for what we're going to talk about today. We're continuing this series, that's a great question, and we're looking at this whole deal of why can't we just get along? So I'm going to pray for us. Um, these scriptures have kind of been very clear. Um, the challenge is really before us to kind of allow that to sink in. But there's some things that I want to share as a means of maybe 
just continuing to help us as we think some of this through. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to be aware that you're here with us. Help us to be aware that you love us and what you want is the very best for us. So I pray that you'll give us ears to hear. I pray that our hearts would be soft and ready to, to just take on board what it is that you're saying to us this morning. Lord, I believe that you love your church. You love your church at Humeridge. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear what you have to say to us today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1975, there was a band, uh, the name of the band was War, and it released a song that was called, Why Can't We Be Friends? And it was the 70s, so the lyrics were fairly deep and meaningful. Basically, three quarters of the song just keeps repeating the question over and over again, why can't we be friends? The song wasn't written for churches, but many of us know that maybe it should have. John Kessler was a professor at the Pastoral Studies Department at Moody Institute Bible, Bible Institute in Chicago. He's written a number of books. He's also been published in all sorts of magazines. And he shared about a painful conversation he had with a young man about his faith. This young man was at uni. He'd grown up in a Christian home. His dad was actually a pastor. So he had practically grown up in church. He regularly went to Sunday school on Sunday mornings. He attended vacation Bible school every summer. And he memorized enough Bible verses in the children's club that he actually got a trophy. But somewhere along the line, he began to question the beliefs that his parents had tried to teach him. When Kessler asked the young man why he now dated, doubted, sorry, why he now doubted the faith he once professed to believe, he replied, if God was really who Christians say he is, church people would be different. Kessler went on to state that he didn't think this young man is the only one who feels this way. If the church is the greatest proponent of the gospel, the church is also the gospel's greatest stumbling block. Beyond any questions the young man may have had about the reliability of the Bible, or how reasonable the standards by which God was going to judge humanity, was a simpler and perhaps more disturbing question. The young man was, in essence, asking, if the gospel has the power you Christians claim it does, why don't you behave better? Kessler stated that he wasn't sure that he knew how to answer the young man. After all, Jesus did say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love, as Francis Schaeffer observed, is the mark of a Christian. Love is not the only ap apologetic argument for the truth of the gospel, but it is the most compelling. This is what Kessler stated as he concluded um, his, his story. He said, I suppose I could have accused this young man of exaggerating or whining except I know what he says is true because he's my son. I have attended the same churches that he has attended. And in many cases, the experience has been as painful for me 
as it has been for him. How disappointing. How really sad. I've attended the same churches that he's attended. And in many cases, the experience has been as painful for me as it has been for him. What disturbs me most about that story is that I know that there would be others that would be very similar. Church has not been a place where some people have witnessed what the writer of the Psalms describes when he declares how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. This morning, I don't want to be critical of the church for the sake of being critical. I am genuinely sad and sorry that people have been hurt, disappointed, disillusioned as a result of time spent in church. And I am sincerely sorry for the times I have caused or contributed to someone's hurt, disappointment or disillusionment. And I have. So this morning, I want to take some time to begin the conversation about why we can't just get on. This will not be an in-depth coverage, it won't cover everything, but hopefully it's a launch for more conversations to occur in your home groups or maybe afterwards as we gather in the chapel for anyone who wants to ask some questions. Rich Volandes is the pastor of New Life Fellowship in New York. It is a very large multiracial church. And in his book, The Deeply Formed Life, in chapter three, which is entitled Racial Reconciliation for a Divided World, he writes this, the starting point for any Christian conversation on racial reconciliation must be the purpose of the gospel. He goes on to say, for many, the gospel is their ticket into the afterlife. When I die, I go to heaven because of what Jesus has done for me. For others, the gospel is connected to a particular understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Along this line of thinking, the gospel is reduced to a particular theory of atonement. Herein lies one of our greatest challenges. When the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife or to a glorious but strictly individual personal decision of faith, it is not what Jesus described as the good news about his kingdom come. And predictably, there is no real urgency to see lives oriented towards a more loving and just way of being in our world now. He goes on to state, it is my conviction that the gospel at its core is not merely the good news of getting saved. As great and wonderful as that is, the gospel at its core is centrally about the story and victory of Jesus, the risen and throned Lord. He is our good news. And further, this gospel has specific purposes for the healing of our world. One of the main purposes is the creation of a new family that tr transcends all barriers. <clears throat> Excuse me. He quotes George Eldon Ladd, a theologian, who wrote these words, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation in the future life to those who believe, it must also transform all of the relationships of life here and now and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in this world. At the core of the gospel then is the making right of all things 
through Jesus. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the world is set on a trajectory of renewal. And God graciously invites us to work towards that with him. However, this work is not an individual enterprise. It is one that needs to be orchestrated by the collected efforts of a new family in the power of the Spirit. What this means is that God is not simply in the business of saving souls. He is also in the business of creating a new family. That's what he wants. A new family. Sounds good in theory. But the truth is that we live in a world that seems to be becoming more segmented and segregated. And some of the things that seem to be pulling people apart have found their way into churches. If you had told me two years ago that vaccines and mask wearing would have been issues that would cause tension and division in some churches, I would have thought, what? No way. No way something like a vaccine or wearing masks would cause Christians to be tense and divided. How wrong I would have been. What if Philandis is right in his contention that God is not simply in the business of saving souls? What if he's right that he's also in the business of creating a new family? We need to ask ourselves, what hinders that from being more of a reality here? Why it seems that way too often, we just can't get along. Volandis refers to a Fast Company article, a business magazine, that refers to the term filter bubble. This term describes an algorithm on Facebook that created an echo chamber for people to see only the content they would most likely agree with. The filter bubble is a good image for what's happening in our time. Too often, many of us just surround ourselves with ideas, interests, and political thoughts that reinforce what we already believe. And this has led to a brazen demonizing of people who think otherwise. Volandis goes on to say, the way of the current world is to friend, is to friend and follow people in the social media universe based on shared interests and values. And although this brings helpful social identification and connection based on affinity, it has created a new set of problems. We are increasingly distanced from people with whom we disagree. But this was not Jesus' approach. When Jesus called his first disciples, he put people together who would most certainly not have followed each other on Instagram or been friends on Facebook. If we have a look at just two of the first disciples, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, Matthew had worked for the Roman occupiers. He had ripped off his own people by collecting taxes and collecting too much. He had propped up a corrupt and oppressive occupying force. And Simon had been passionately committed to overthrowing the Romans by any means necessary. And he was opposed not only to the Roman occupiers, but to anyone who sided with them. These two, Matthew and Simon, 
would not have attended too many of the same dinner parties. They would have certainly not mixed in the same circles. These two um, would never have been put on the same table at a wedding reception. But here they are as part of the 12. Here they are as part of that first group of followers of Jesus. And despite all their differences, political, social, economic, somehow Matthew and Simon stayed the course. They worked, they served, and they followed Jesus together. They chose to get on. Beyond the 12, Jesus would invite women to be disciples, something that was unheard of at the time and broke all sorts of social taboos. This was a group of individuals that would have certainly stood out. These disciples of Jesus doing life together and following Jesus. Volandis again states, in the forming of this small community, Jesus was symbolically making a statement that in the kingdom of God, a new family would be created. But I want you to hear this, please. For each of those disciples who began to be part of that new community, it cost them something. In order to be part of that new community, it cost them something. Matthew had to stop taking advantage of people like Simon. He had to stop being loyal to a system that rewarded him with all sorts of comforts. Simon had to embrace a different view, a different vision of rebellion and revolution. And he also had to give up wanting to kill people like Matthew. Community will always cost us something. Being family will always cost us something. And this is something that we have failed to talk about very often in this place. But if we really want to see this church, this church community function as God intends it to be, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a cost for each and every person who wants to be part of it. There will be a cost if you want it to be what God wants it to be. There is always a cost. And I cannot emphasize this point enough. If we desire unity in this place, if we want to see a God-honoring community operating, and if we truly want to experience this new family that God is in the business of creating, it has to start with me and it has to start with you. Humbling yourselves and humbling myself before God and actually asking him honestly to show us what he wants and what he, what he wants us to give up. There is no other way than us laying down, surrendering any sense of our rights, our preferences, our sense of entitlement for the sake of something greater and far better. I also want to say to you this morning that I want to encourage us to be proactive in taking steps towards each other. Maybe it will mean taking time to sit or stand and really listen to someone you don't know who maybe is very different from you. To be really curious about their story, interested in finding out about them. This um, 
This past week on Tuesday, I took a funeral service for a gentleman, Ron File. He was 94 years of age when he passed away. But what got me in the service was that his grandchildren stood up and they spoke about their granddad. And they spoke particularly about the fact that one of the things that had stood out about their granddad was that he was always curious about their lives. No matter when they visited, he always wanted to find out the latest things they were into, their latest plans, their latest things they were listening to. He always wanted to ask them what they thought of the cricket. He wanted to hear from them. And they talked about their grandfather as this curious man who just loved their stories. He loved their stories. And you know what came through in that service? They loved their granddad. They just loved their granddad. I want to say to you that I want to encourage you to be curious about the people who are sitting around you. Not in a creepy way, but I want you to be curious about the people who are sitting around you. Hear their stories. Find out things that have happened this week. Find out things that they love. Things that they think about what's going on. Sit and talk. I want to challenge you also this morning because I want us to be practical. This, I think, would make a real difference. I I had a great conversation two Mondays ago with Rod Dolling. I think Rod's somewhere in the room here. Rod's one of our home group leaders, just a great fella. And Rod was telling me, just sharing, we were just talking, sitting, and he was telling me a bit about his life. And he spoke about years ago he'd been part of a smaller church And then he moved to Brisbane. And in Brisbane, he and his wife began attending this very large church, a good church that was doing great things. He got involved in a life group and that was good. But he said to me one of the differences he really noticed about his time in this smaller church where people really seemed to know each other and this larger church was this. The whole time that he was part of this church in Brisbane, and it was a a number of years he was part of that church, he and his wife. He said to me that during that whole time, they were never invited to anyone's home. In that whole time, no one in the church ever invited them home for a meal or for a cuppa. He said that there were some people that would say, oh, let's go for coffee to one of the coffee shops near the, the church. But not once did he ever get invited to someone's home. And I thought about that and it stayed with me. And I think it would be really good in the month of Feb for some of us to invite someone we don't know so well to come and visit us in our home for a meal or for coffee or for whatever for afternoon tea, just to kind of invite them to your home. Let them be part of that with you. And when you do it, take a photo and send it through to Humeridge Communications. And we'll use those photos of you having meals or coffee or tea together. Take a risk. Ask to hear someone else's story. Just ask them, tell me your story. Tell me about your life in three minutes. 
someone who you might be a little different from and be committed to real listening. When it comes to listening, many of us could do better in this area, me especially. Some of us need to be ready to let go of being right. Can I say that again? Some of us, when we come to listening, need to let go of being right and be open to hear a different perspective and open to hear a perspective that maybe we don't necessarily agree with, but we respect that that's their perspective. At New Life Church, they speak about three steps in listening. The first step is to leave your world. Let go of the familiar. Take a risk. Step out. Step out of what's comfortable. Number two, enter into someone else's world. Practice active, humble, and curious listening. Ask questions. And three, allow yourself to be formed by others. Open up to their worldviews while holding on to yourself. Seeking to actively move towards seeing those around us as family will also mean that we will move to being more inclined to see the person more than an issue or more than a problem. Last year in our Disrupted series, I spoke about Joseph, the husband of Mary, the earthly father of Jesus. He was an upright, a good man, a respected man. He was regarded in that community as one of the leaders in the religious side of life. And he was committed as a person to strictly committing, keeping the laws of the Torah. His standing, his place in the community was tied to his religious reputation. And then he finds himself with a pregnant fiancé in a small town. And that development was earth-shattering to say the least. It had the potential to not just destroy his reputation, but to see him lose his place in that community. And I said last year that Joseph was faced with a choice. He could focus on the issue, what was right and what was wrong. He could easily build a case for how wrong Mary had been. He could go down the path that most other religious men of the day would have gone down. He could have exposed her sin and then let her be punished. And then he could keep his reputation. He's standing intact in the community. Or he could see the issue, but not lose sight of the person. He could see the issue, but not lose sight of the person. And I said last year that one of the things that I admire so much and I, I, I start to understand why Joseph was given that responsibility of being the earthly dad of Jesus. Joseph didn't lose sight of the other person. Even as his world was being turned upside down, he didn't lose sight of Mary. He knew however he responded would impact her and that mattered to him. And his idea of taking the path of divorcing her quietly was about how he could still care for her, how he could still minimise harm to her. In spite of his hurt, his disappointment, his sense of loss, he refused to go down the line of revenge or punishment. He decided, he chose to be concerned for her well-being. 
He didn't lose sight of Mary as a person of worth. He saw her. The message paraphrase of the verses in Matthew 1 states this, Joseph, chagrined, humiliated, displeased and hurt, but noble, decent, self-sacrificing, not petty, determined to take care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. I'm not sure about you, but I've met people who when situations and issues arise in a church, quickly drift from grace. They go back to the rules with a vengeance. And the rules become weapons to punish and correct. And it becomes all about what is right. And before anyone gets carried away, let me tell you, I believe that what's right is, right is important and it matters. But I have seen people who have waved the flag of what is right and then they use that as justification for acting without gentleness or kindness or respect. Family at its best is where we see each member and we really see them. We understand their value and worth even when they make mistakes. There have been times when I have done this well and other times where I have failed and I have caused harm. I am convinced that we would find getting on so much easier if in the church if we saw those around us as they were meant to be seen. The New Testament used familiar language. Men and women are seen as brothers and sisters. And those who belong to Jesus have God not as a distant creator but as Abba. Father, the family that God wants to usher in is, that, is, is one that is to be built on love and grace. And we are encouraged to do the hard work of getting on with others. We are encouraged to listen, to be kind, to be caring. And while it is really important for us to be proactive and take steps in order to build the type of community that will honour and please Jesus, a, a community where people live together with unity. There is one important thing that we need to keep front and centre in our thinking. John Kessler, who spoke about, uh, spoke about at the start, who was a professor at this Bible Institute, he preached a sermon and he spoke about how Christian community is what you get when you're focused on something else. He said that Christian community is the byproduct of going after something else. Those early disciples didn't get it right all the time. They weren't perfect, far from it. But as they did life with Jesus, as they kept their eyes on Jesus and came to know him better and follow him more closely, they changed and that new family began to take shape. While their focus was on him and seeking first his kingdom, God was at work in them. That verse that Abby read from uh, Romans 15 is really important and it'll come back up on the screen. It simply says this, May our dependably, steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other 
as well as Jesus gets along with us all. May may our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity in you so that you get along with each other as well as Jesus gets along with us all. What will really make a difference when it comes to getting along? What will make all the difference when it comes to being the type of community that honours God and what brings about more of a family resemblance will be our maturity. And maturity, Christian maturity, is measured in obedience and desire. A desire to know Jesus better and a willingness to obey him no matter what. It will be God at work in us that will make all the difference as we go after doing life with Jesus and doing it together. I love that quote from Tim Keller. He says this, And yet church unity is not singularly supernatural. It is a divine and human innovation. God partners with the faith-filled and willing. And God will be at work as we seek to follow Jesus humbly and faithfully. He will soften our hearts. He will soften our attitudes. He will prompt us and remind us. And I believe that he will give us opportunities to obey to actually practice getting on with those around us. And it can start this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we need your help. There's been heaps of stuff that has been shared this morning. Your word has spoken very clearly about the importance of unity, the importance of getting on with one another. Lord, help us not to treat it as though it's a minor thing. Help us to love one another. We pray that as a church community here, Lord, we would walk humbly with you. Help us to be humble enough to listen. Help us to be humble enough to obey. Father, help us to see each other as you see us. Help us to look beyond some of the things that sometimes cause us to step back. Help us to help us to put aside sometimes our desire to judge or to be right. And help us to see each other as you see us. Father, we thank you that you love us as we are. We thank you that you are at work in our lives, seeking to bring us more into being who you want us to be. And Father, I pray that you will guide and protect and help us as a church, please. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.